1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones and today I'm talking to Michael Kimmage about collisions, the origins of the war in Ukraine and the new global instability, published today as a Kindle book by Oxford University Press and as a physical book on March the 22nd. Quote, after a few anomalous years of peace, Europe became in 2022 what it's always been, an epicentre of conflict the fault line around which the biggest and worst geopolitical earthquakes tend to occur. A member of the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the U.S. State Department, where he handled the Ukraine-Russia portfolio from 2014 to 16, Michael Kimmage is now a professor of history at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., including Collisions. He is the author of four books, most recently in 2020, The Abandonment of the West. Michael, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Tim. My first question is, why collisions? The title, I think, speaks to, first of all, just uh, the fact of war, uh, the collision of armies, uh, and the collision of military hardware. But if it were only that, it could be in the singular, uh, and the title of the book is a plural noun, collisions. Uh, And by that, I mean that there is really a nested quality to this conflict, uh, and that is, it is at least three conflicts in one. The first being between Russia and Ukraine, the immediate war. The second being between Russia and Europe, uh, because this is a conflict about Ukraine's place in Europe uh, and about what Europe signifies to Russia, what Russia signifies to Europe. And thirdly, uh, this is a conflict between the United States uh, and Russia, uh, which in some ways harkens back to the Cold War, in some ways is very different from the Cold War, but uh, the US is deeply involved in the conflict to be sure, and an important element to Russian strategy and a Russian sort of attitude toward Ukraine is Ukraine's relationship to the United States. So there are three dimensions, each of them quite different. uh, And I don't think that we can get a good sense or a good grasp of the war if we look at it as only a singular collision. I think it must be looked at as as multiple collisions.
1: Because obviously the origins of the war go right back to the collapse of the Soviet Union, but you identify a more immediate trigger in the book as 2008 onwards. And you write That quote, Europe was a magical place in 2008, but there were early signs that this was wearing off. So, can you expand on that?
2: Yes, I'd begin the book in the joint or with the joint optimism of Angela Merkel and Barack Obama. Uh, And this was, you know, sort of a period of political transition that was viewed in Berlin and Washington as basically very positive. Of course, you have the financial crisis of 2008, which is a Uh, a different storyline but there was a a remarkable optimism about European integration and this is very reasonable given the preceding history from 1991 to 2008 Europe had integrated dramatically overcome a lot of its historical tribulations and uh, difficulties Uh, and there was you know there were many reasons to expect that this process would go on Continuously, And for Merkel and Obama both, uh, Ukraine was perhaps secondary in 2008, but there was a sense that Russia at a certain point would integrate into Europe uh, and that countries like Ukraine would integrate uh, into Europe. And this led in 2009 to something called the Eastern Partnership Program, an EU program for six post-Soviet states, Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, Azerbaijan, Armenia, uh, and Georgia. Uh, and this was a program to bring them gently, moderately, uh, gradually into the orbit of The European Union. And it was really based upon the optimism that I've just been describing. So without going further in the story, what does happen by 2012-2013 is that the Eastern Partnership Program leads to something called the Association Agreement between Ukraine uh, and the European Union. And there's a kind of dance that's going on in 2012-2013 about whether Ukraine will join or not join. And Ukraine's then president, Viktor Yanukovych, signals that he could join the uh, with the association agreement, not join the EU, but become closer to the EU. Uh, and then sort of at the last moment, he pulls out uh, and there's a summit meeting in Vilnius that he goes to and he doesn't sign the association agreement. Uh, and then he comes back to Kiev and there are very substantial protests uh, in Kiev that react to this decision uh, of Yanukovych's. I'll sort of stop there, but these protests set in motion a revolution that's going to occur uh, within Ukraine. And that revolution, in turn, begins a story of military conflict that is the necessary prehistory to the 2022 war.
1: Yeah, I find your description of Obama and Merkel as a power tandem is really interesting. Do, do you feel that they really were the dominant players in this kind of willful blindness regarding Putin's Russia?
2: Yes, uh, I have empathy for them uh, because it's very difficult to disentangle a lot of the strands that were tied up uh, in 2008-2009. One of them, and this is a crucial episode to go over in detail, is that you have Dmitry Medvedev, who's the president of Russia from 2008 to 2012. And one could not know in 2008 that he would be edged out by Vladimir Putin, that Putin would would return uh, and take the country in quite a different direction in 2012. But the rhetoric at least of Medvedev, however powerful he was or was not, the rhetoric of Medvedev was to integrate Russia into the global economy to integrate Russia into Europe. And Medvedev really foregrounded questions of economics and technology. His nickname in Russia was Little iPhone. and uh, He made a pilgrimage to Silicon Valley where he opened his Twitter account with the directors of Twitter standing in uh, attendance. Uh, and I think it was not crazy to build a set of expectations upon a figure like Medvedev that were fairly benign. So it's not as if Merkel and Obama missed something that was obvious, but by 2012, you have a different leader in Russia and it starts to travel. Russia itself starts to travel uh, in a different direction. And then I do view the events in Ukraine in 2013 and 2014 as to a degree accidental. So they create a very, very rapid series uh, of changes to which I think in the end, Obama and Merkel responded to very poorly. Uh, But uh, one does have to have empathy for the, contingent nature of some of these uh, transitions. Had Ukraine not had this revolution, I think there would have been sour relationships between Putin's Russia and the West. But I don't think that we would have the series of wars that we've had in the last uh, 10 or so uh, years. So yes, Obama and Merkel missed a lot. But uh, when you go back and reconstruct their world uh, and their environment, uh, you you could blandly say that they were doing the best they could.
1: Well, going slightly off topic, but I can't resist it. You talked there about Medvedev, mm-hmm. uh, and he's such a he's such a diminished figure now. Was that did you get any inkling of that when you were in the State Department? That uh, what was his transformation?
2: Well, I joined the State Department in late 2014, so that was two years into you know the kind of um, post-Medvedev Putin term, and so all of our attention was focused on uh, the figure of Putin, and Medvedev was at that point a, a has been as he sort of. Uh, Remained. Uh, I think it was possible to discern, you know, certainly this was the word on the street in many different places, that Medvedev was a rather weak figure, uh, that he was there to do Putin's bidding, uh, that he was potentially a kind of puppet of Putin's. But, you know, in a sense, it's easier to make that judgment uh, in hindsight. I think what's most remarkable about Medvedev uh, is maybe not so much that he has sputtered out. Uh, I don't think he's ever been anything much more than a, a kind of political mediocrity, Uh, But what's remarkable about him is that the position that he took, sincerely or insincerely, between 2008 and 2012, was really quite a pro-Western position, as if he needed to modernize Russia along Western lines. That's the message that he was sending to Russians and to people abroad. Now he's become stridently nationalistic and, you know, sort of profoundly anti-Ukrainian. And uh, there's a kind of tone of voice that he uses, especially on Twitter, that's just uh, sometimes startlingly incoherent, but just startling. Uh, As such, it's just not the man that he was or not the man that he seemed to be between 2008 and 2012. That's the evolution that I think is the most intriguing one.
1: As I said, the book really gets going from 2008, but now now we've established that backdrop, I'd like actually to go a bit further back to 1999, Putin coming to power, and the experience of the NATO intervention in, in Kosovo and the changing of the borders of Serbia. You. You, and you're not the first person to write this, but you do stress what a formative moment that was for Putin's thinking.
2: Yes. Uh, if, if, uh, if you'll allow me also to develop a continuum here, it's, it's 1999, uh, Kosovo, but it's also the Iraq war. Uh, and then it's the NATO intervention in Libya. All three of these events are very significant data points for Putin's thinking and for the thinking of the Russian political elite, national security elite, about where Russia stands and about the kind of power that the United States wields. And I think this is such crucial intellectual backdrop to the decision to invade Ukraine in 2022 that it demands careful uh, articulation. So I think in a Russian reading of 1999, the issue is not just that NATO was there uh, and not just that NATO was poised to Uh, Expand as it would very dramatically in 2004. I think that the issue is that NATO goes out of area uh, into Serbia and uses its military hard power to refashion uh, the borders of of the Balkans. Uh, And so NATO is technically a defensive military alliance, but it wasn't really behaving as such uh, in former Yugoslavia. uh, And that was really upsetting to Russia. Beyond bonds of affection between Russia and Serbia, I think that that's actually a bit secondary, but it's more that NATO appeared to be taking on a new role In europe second data point of the iraq war which really does follow on this uh, moment of 1999 is that the united states wages war in iraq and before that in afghanistan you know without much of a u.n uh you know sort of legitimacy without the authority of the u.n behind it uh you you know colin powell with his famous address to the u.n about weapons of mass destruction and so here you have a somewhat more ambitious united states that's writing its own rules in the Middle East, not just in Europe, and acting in the Russian interpretation uh, with impunity and removing from Russia one of Russia's most important foreign policy tools, which is its veto on the uh, on the UN Security Council. So that's you know quite significant. And then it happens again uh, under Medvedev's watch uh, in 2011 in Libya when NATO uh, involves itself uh, in a bombing campaign in Libya. And that's with the acquiescence of Russia, which abstains at the at the United Nations and that becomes a point of friction between Medvedev who was then Russia's president and uh, and Putin. The two of them squabble openly uh, about whether Russia should have abstained uh, or not. So I think all of this signifies in the kind of culture, the, the thinking of Russian national security elites, a United States that's becoming more and more emboldened uh, and sort of lurching closer to Russia uh, and depriving Russia of some of its key foreign policy uh, and military tools. And of course, just to finish the point, 2014, 2022 manifests quite considerable pushback on Russia's part uh, against what they see as this negative this this negative and disturbing trend.
1: On that same score, you have, there's a quote from the book where you say, quote, NATO enlargement proceeded on the unwise premise that NATO expansion was itself resolving the problem of Eastern European security. In truth, by expanding, NATO was absorbing the age-old problem of Eastern European security in the 1990s and thereafter. Now, i take that not as an argument that some make that uh, NATO expansion was a mistake, but that NATO was expanded from the wrong premise. People weren't thinking thinking straight about
2: what they were doing. That's my interpretation. Uh, and this is a much debated topic. And, and, and many others would argue to the contrary, that uh, every inch of NATO expansion was wise because it provided a kind of protection that if it weren't there, that Russia would contest. In other words, if NATO had not expanded to the Baltic republics, they would be in play now, uh, as Ukraine is. uh, And so any NATO expansion is in and of itself uh, a good thing. But I do take a different view on that point. Uh, And I think that there is a profound difference in role for NATO between Cold War NATO, and of course, NATO is a Cold War institution created in the late 1940s, and post-Cold War NATO. uh, And... You know sort of get in a moment to this notion of nato absorbing age-old uh regional and ethnic uh and national conflicts but uh, let me start with the cold war nato cold war nato is brilliantly designed uh, and that's one of the reasons why it's going to be so effective from 1949 to 1989 or 1991 uh, and it was brilliantly designed because it was um a set of countries that very much wished to be a part of the Alliance uh, and that contributed to the Alliance. And it was a set of countries that uh, had a kind of internal coherence. You have the Iron Curtain. In effect, what NATO was defending in Europe was everything on the Western side uh, of the Iron Curtain. And the Iron Curtain is contested at the beginning of the Cold War. There are all these Berlin crises, but by, let's say the 19, late 50s, uh, 1960s, the Iron Curtain is there uh, and is not really very uh, unclear. And so NATO had the job of defending the NATO member states, Uh, it was extremely clear what that job was, uh, and NATO's function was to deter the Soviet Union, which it did uh, brilliantly. After the end of the Cold War, of course, you had this optimism that we were discussing a moment ago that everything is integrating and the world is becoming one and Europe is kind of uh, joining together and it's moving past its its historic problems, 20th century, pre-20th century problems. Uh, That, in the end, proved to be quite naive, and it proved to be quite naive directly in relation to NATO expansion. So NATO goes in this very incoherent way forward. It's some of the countries in the Balkans, right? It's not Serbia, uh, but it is Montenegro. Uh, It's some of the countries in Eastern and Central Europe. It's Poland, but it's not Belarus. Uh, It's Romania and Bulgaria, uh, but not Ukraine. Uh, and you have this little island of Kaliningrad, which is Russian territory, that's tucked within two NATO states, uh, Poland and uh, and Lithuania. Uh, and then you have the additional confusion that NATO makes the claim in 2008 that it's going to expand into Georgia and Ukraine, you know, not the most sincere or believable of claims, but nevertheless one that was made. And so you just don't know. <laughs> Where does NATO end? Uh, and who would, in their right minds, create such a structure that's so jagged uh, and confusing. And so that makes questions of deterrence and defense and NATO as a defensive alliance just a lot more complicated. And so what NATO ended up absorbing is the incredible security dilemmas of Eastern and Central Europe, cause of countless wars uh, from the 17th century to the, uh, to the present. And NATO was sort of smack in the middle of it, not far away uh, and struggling at the very moment to understand whether it's deterring Russia or whether it's actively involved in Ukraine uh, and that's just not a great state of affairs for NATO, I would say.:
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it,, <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's Shopify.com slash system.
1: So you set the scene for Putin's, the development of Putin's thinking between 2008 and 2013. And I want to come in with another quote from the book where you say, quote, over time, the low comedy of Yanukovych's escape came to resemble the curious drama of Archduke Ferdinand's assassination in June 1914, a seemingly random occurrence on Europe's periphery, an accident that somehow precipitated a major European war is the point you're making there that this was decisive because it was the end of any hope that Putin had that he could manage Ukraine back into the russian base through his through his client in Kiev.
2: No, I don't think it's that is is quite over in 2014. And the simple fact that Russia doesn't invade or reinvade between 2015 when the active fighting ceases and 2022 is a sign that Russia was sort of making up its mind, trying to figure out what would happen. And I think that there was a hope in in Moscow that somebody like Yanukovych or maybe Yanukovych himself would come back. That you know, Ukraine since 1991 had vacillated, it had been more pro-Russian at times, more pro-European at times, uh, and that the pendulum would, would, again, would again swing back toward uh, Russia, which didn't prove to be uh, the case. You know, you have an election in, in Ukraine in 2019 that, that Zelensky wins and he runs as a peace candidate. I think a little burst of optimism in Moscow that maybe he's somebody that uh, Russia could do business with, but that gets d- disappointed pretty Uh, pretty quickly. But still, I think, you know, a lot is open still after 2014, 2015. I think the way in which the flight of Yanukovych to Russia, this is the evening of February 21st, 2014, early morning hours, he first goes to Kharkiv and then to Crimea and then uh, to Russia, I think it does resemble the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand uh, in the sense that it reminds us how important certain contingencies are. You know, you could imagine that Europe was destined inevitably for the First World War. There are historians who make that argument, but still, um, you know, I think the First World War begins in this disbelief, uh, and it's not as if anybody really wished to have a world war uh, in in 1914. It somehow happens. It gets triggered by some insecurity, some moment of insecurity and stability that then proves impossible to contain. And I think 2014 is very much like that. It is not fully a point of no return. Uh, there are ways in which it could have been brought back perhaps to the much more peaceful order that was there before February 2014 when uh, when Yanukovych makes his, uh, makes his escape. Uh, but after 2014, to a degree, the die is cast. And the collision course, you know, to go back to my title, the kind of collisions that I'm speaking about, Russia, Ukraine, Russia, Europe, Russia, United States, the collision course is apparent already in 2014. It's there. You can see that it could go in that direction. Uh, and that to me is what's so significant about that moment. But I would want to underscore the accidental nature of it. That I think takes us back to the to the terrain, the kind of international terrain of the early 20th century. The point you make
1: very clearly is that while the collision course has become clear, it's not become clear to the French and Germans, for example. So that you you totally make a very good point about their role in the Minsk negotiations. That essentially they they really only saw themselves as facilitators. You point out that merkel had ruled out military force in any circumstance and that meant that the russian basically the russians called the shots it was their action or their inaction that determined
2: everything absolutely this is a psychological disjunction i think we're still living with this disjunction but it was quite acute in 2014 and 2015 between a russia that did believe that it had started uh what was truly a war uh you know it paused in 2015 Uh, And, you know, I said a moment ago that Russia hoped that Ukraine would kind of tilt back toward Russia and that it could keep its relationship to the West uh, intact. But it had taken a very, very significant step, Russia, by annexing Crimea and planting its military forces in eastern Ukraine. So it had taken a step toward war. uh, And psychologically, I don't know if the Russian population was there, but I think the Kremlin elite was in that frame of mind. Uh, and you have Russia moving into Syria in 2015, and you have Russian intervention in American domestic politics in 2015, 2016. So there, these are other steps that take take us toward greater confrontation between Russia and the West. But the disjunction is that this wasn't really felt on the other side of the barricades or the other side of the trenches. Uh, and I think that this is as true for Washington as it would be for London, Berlin, uh, or Paris. When it comes to the diplomacy of 2014, 2015, it was France and Germany that were Uh, in the driver's seat. And I think what was so, in a way, unimpressive about that kind of diplomacy uh, was in part the naivete, the sense that it was all over, that we had kind of moved through the worst of the crisis, and now we're just mopping up. There was that uh, sentiment with the subsiding of fighting in 2014, uh, 2015, but it's worse than that uh, on the Western side. So the West was very clear about the conditions it was setting. Crimea was fudged, and I think reading between the lines, Crimea was kind of accepted as, as something that would be Russian in perpetuity, maybe unfair, illegitimate against international law, but, you know, sanctioned and then to a degree for- forgotten. But the Russian soldiers in eastern Ukraine uh, was different. Uh, and there, the transatlantic position was crystal clear that they should get out uh, and they needed to leave. Uh, and there needed to be elections in those regions and those regions needed to be restored uh, to a sovereign and independent Ukraine. There's no ambiguity about that position, whether we're speaking about Francois Hollande, the president of France, or Angela Merkel, the German chancellor. Uh, or Barack Obama, uh, the American president. Uh, And yet it didn't happen. Uh, And when it doesn't happen, you know, the sanctions are not increased. Uh, The sanctions are kind of left to dissipate in effectiveness. And then each of these countries, France, Germany, uh, and the U.S., and I think the U.K. is in the same category, you know, gradually begin to normalize their relations uh, with with Russia. So conditions had been set, you know, a sort of tough stance was taken uh, and then it was, uh, you know, acted upon without toughness, without um, focus, without uh, uh, without discipline. In that sense, you know, there was a refusal to recognize how grave the situation was uh, in Ukraine, and that gave Russia a lot of tactical advantages pre-2022.
1: Well, coming forward to the Trump presidency, and you pull absolutely no punches during your chapter on that, but you do make a very interesting point for somebody who was in the Obama administration. Which was that Trump, given where he is now in the position of the Republican Party on on Ukraine, if he'd actually exercised some self-discipline, he could have imposed his will on Ukraine. He could have forced a settlement at Crimea, maybe along the lines of what the Ukrainians were prepared to accept at the Istanbul
2: negotiation. And he could have made a commitment that Ukraine could never join NATO. Yeah, so this is a very interesting question with trump i mean he's a hard man to decipher i don't envy the historians in the future who are going to have to write about him because it's just difficult to know what's what's real and what's true uh both with trump himself but also in the in the uh in the trump years but you know i like the question very much it's an interesting hypothetical uh in a sense if trump had made good on some of the stuff that he discussed on the campaign trail in 2016 so he made a real point of not demonizing putin Uh, and Russia. He sort of suggested that Russia had a lot of legitimate interests uh, in Ukraine and and that the West, the United States and Europe had overstepped and provoked Russia into, um, you know, sort of unfortunate acts uh, acts in 2014, uh, 2015. And Trump had very little sympathy for for Ukraine. So whether you agree or disagree with those positions, he's somebody who could have done business with Putin to be sure. Uh, And he suggested that he wanted to and that he could resolve these crises and kind of move on to things that were more important, you know, U.S. competition with China or the domestic American economy, things that mattered more uh, to Trump than, you know, the territorial integrity of of Ukraine, but none of that happens. Uh, And not only does it not happen, but you never see Trump put forward a set of ideas uh, that he could have used to move in that direction. Uh, He doesn't outline uh, an agenda in uh, 2016, 2017, 2018 that could have been shared uh, with Russia. Now maybe some of this was attempted covertly, and we'll get that you know 10, 20, 30 years from now from from historians who open the uh, the archives. But my guess is he never really tried. Uh, and it's interesting why that would be the case. Did he not care? Was this kind of campaign uh, uh, talk uh, that wasn't really um, uh, seriously intended? Did he get tangled up in the Russia investigations and the, the you know the domestic? Uh, chaos surrounding uh, issues related to Russia in in 2016 2017. That's you know sort of possible. Was he not able to command his own bureaucracy and then had too many people, General Mattis and uh, and McMaster and Tillerson and others who were pulling in a different direction? You know all of that is possible. But the simple fact is that those years are four lost years. There's just nothing attempted, nothing tried, uh, nothing done. Whether it was arming Ukraine in some comprehensive fashion or whether it was diplomacy that would lead to a you know, kind of neutral Ukraine, you know, there's, there's, there's no activity.
1: Finally, coming to the, the full scale invasion itself, how decisive do you think the Afghan pullouts and the AUKUS debacle with the French were in convincing Putin that the time was, time was right now?
2: I don't think it's hugely important. I don't think AUKUS plays, uh, a, a particularly prominent role. I might expand some of the, uh, the contributing factors, uh, uh, a bit um I, I think that the passing of Angela Merkel from the scene is not a necessary condition for the war but something of a condition for the war Europe is in a leadership transition phase uh in 2019 2020 20 I do think that January 6th in the sense that the US is in a a, a period a sort of a moment of chronic political you know sort of chaos or dysfunction sort of not able to carry out its business I think that that plays uh something of a Uh, of a role. And I do think Afghanistan, but I would, I would put Afghanistan a little bit more broadly than the messy pullout in August, 2021. You know, if you want to take an uncharitable read of Afghanistan, which I'm sure Putin does when it comes to the U.S., it would go as follows, that September 11th creates the reason for the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2022. uh, And the U.S. goes in to kind of eviscerate the Taliban uh, and make um, a September 11th, a second September 11th impossible. And what happens over time is that the U.S. doesn't really get there militarily or politically and ends up negotiating its own military exit from Afghanistan with the, with the Taliban. So the U.S. goes in with these big ambitions and kind of leaves with its tail between its legs. And I think that that was mapped on uh, to Ukraine for Putin uh, as, uh, as a distinct possibility. And I think that that played a role in his thinking about uh, the war. This is the kind of power that the United States has become. Uh, it was high and mighty in the 1990s, but it's become a diminished power It doesn't make good on its promises it loses its you know patience and pulls away from situations that are uh difficult and if that's the truth of afghanistan that will be the truth uh of uh of, of ukraine uh and i think was a was a contributing factor but i should say just as a as a footnote that none of us has any evidence on this question none of us really knows when putin made the decision it could have been five years ago you know some people think that he'd made the decision to invade in February 2022, a few weeks before the invasion uh, itself, uh, in which case, you know, August, Afghanistan, January 6th would be, uh, you know, very much secondary factors and features. But I would put, um, you know, sort of composite U.S. frustrations on the international stage, changes in leadership, domestic political problems in the U.S., you know, plus, uh, you know, whatever Putin's reading of Biden was uh, in that summer, all of that has to, uh, all of that has to matter.
1: Well, I come to the conclusion of the book, which are really thought-provoking, and I'll start with really a question around where you say, quote, Russia's relations with the West will be conflictual for a long time to come. There must now be the governing assumption, given the compromises Moscow will need, an anti military support for Ukraine, permanent ceding of Crimea and eastern Donbass, and a generalized freeze on NATO expansion, that these can't be met. So... How would you see this conflictual relationship playing out?
2: Well, I'll give you two scenarios, um, a worst case scenario and a better case scenario. I don't think that there are any good scenarios for this. This war, even if it would end tomorrow, is such a horrific event. Um, It's, as I try to characterize in the book, really a tragedy, first and foremost, for the people of Ukraine, but for Russia too, uh, for Europe, really for uh, for the world, it's a it's a tragic uh, it's a tragic event. So there aren't good scenarios, but there are better and worse scenarios. But I'll start with the with the with the worst scenario, which is that, um, you know, Russia has very substantial ambitions uh, with Ukraine, uh, and I think what Russia has learned to do over the course of the last two years is not only to act with a degree of effectiveness uh, militarily in Ukraine. The news of the last couple of weeks certainly confirms that point. Uh, but Russia has also globalized the war. Uh, It has found levers of global influence uh, to complicate things for the West, for backers and supporters of Ukraine, uh, but also to advance its own interests. So the Russian economy is functioning because Russia has found all kinds of channels, avenues into the global economy. And, you know, Russia is getting military support of a substantial kind from North Korea uh, and from uh, Iran that may be, you know, determining the momentum of the battlefield. Uh, at the present moment. And I think that also Russia has been pretty capable with its messaging you know, to to, to global audiences. So Russia has found ways to globalize the war. Uh, it's found ways to fight the war over the long haul. Uh, and I think its ambitions are really quite uh, considerable. Uh, and those ambitions are not ambitions that the West can accept or work with in some simple diplomatic fashion. So I think that they do dictate as a argue, and as you quote from the book, uh, you know, a generational conflict, a conflict that will last for years, but probably a conflict that will last uh, for decades. And the worst case scenario is that this conflict would somehow spin out of control, that it would draw neighboring countries into it, uh, that there would be a nuclear component, uh, that accident or perhaps the design of various actors, given the complexity of things, uh, could push us toward conflict. We, going back to an earlier part of our conversation, we have this island of Kaliningrad, uh, that's there on the Baltic Sea uh, bordering Poland uh, and Lithuania. That has to be provisioned. You have a rail line that goes through Lithuania with, with Russian soldiers going to Kaliningrad. That's a very sensitive place, and there are a lot of things that could just go wrong by accident, uh, and that could take us toward something really resembling uh, uh, a European-wide uh, war, uh, and that would be the worst-case uh, scenario for this. The better-case scenario, uh, and I think this is what I would— recommend and urge upon strategists in London and Washington uh, and throughout Europe is uh, to be prepared for a kind of long-term commitment uh, and at the same time to seek out certain rules of engagement. In a way, this takes us back to the early Cold War. You had high levels of conflict between the West and the Soviet Union uh, and lots that was scary, anarchic, and difficult to control, but they did manage to you know, sort of figure out, where to fight and where uh, not to fight. And so perhaps rules of engagement can be discovered over time uh, if uh, the kind of mental and political toughness is there uh, to think them through. You'll have a line of contact somewhere in or near Ukraine. Uh, Russia's not going to pull back from its own ambitions, but it will have met a kind of limit to those ambitions. uh, And then uh, the active phases of the war might start to to die down. uh, And, uh, you know, some people dream of, A sort of armistice uh, or a kind of Korea-type situation down the road, uh, and that might be the best thing that we could could hope for. So not an elimination of the conflict and not that heads of state can kind of sit down and figure everything out. Uh, I don't think that that's going to work unless there would be big leadership changes in Russia. But rules of engagement, you know, sort of a moderation of the fighting, um, uh, a slowing down of the war uh, such that uh, a degree of normalcy returns uh, to the region. That may be feasible uh, and that's probably the best that uh, that could be hoped for
1: you do identify though a real potential flashpoint which is belarus as you say uh, quote given the extreme distrust between russia and the west belarus finds itself in the zero sun logic of the ukraine war it will be either europe or russia it cannot be both and as you point out it, you know you can have a situation as you described there where the the powers learn to stand off from each other yeah this is a situation where it it's not entirely up to them it's, entirely, it's it's also up to the people of Belarus if if they were to rise up against Lukashenko or against his successor it would be very difficult to stay out of that and it would be very important strategically to the ukraine
2: Absolutely no This uh, Belarus is one of the staging grounds for the Russian invasion in 2022 and in in a way a lot of the nightmares that we could have about the coming years revolve around uh, around Belarus uh the western position is humane and understandable uh, and a bit confusing at the same time that uh, the government of Belarus is not acknowledged as the legitimate government of Belarus. The 2020 election, which did yield a wave of protests in Belarus uh, back then, uh, is understood to have been illegitimate, uh, unfair, which of course it was, uh, and that the real government of Belarus is sitting in Vilnius or or somewhere else. So exactly as you say, if there were to be upheaval in Belarus uh, and Lukashenko were to fall, his health doesn't look you know, terrific. Uh, and he's built Belarus into a very um, unpleasant dictatorship. So there's lots of incentive to get rid of him and to move toward a better better political system. But that would immediately bring in geopolitics. And it would bring in the Baltic republics and Poland. Uh, and whatever element of involvement they would have would be seen in Moscow as totally illegitimate. And of course, the country of Belarus is in many ways already integrated into Russia and especially the militaries of Belarus and Russia are deeply intertwined as are the security services uh, and other uh, other institutions. So it's not as if Russia needs to look for military assets in Belarus. Uh, Russia is much, much more present militarily in Belarus than it was in Ukraine in 2014 or 2022. So how do you get out of that situation? How do you (laughs) negotiate your way out of that situation? How do you fight your way out of that situation? It's really... Uh, combustible. And of course, Belarus borders um, three NATO member states, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, and Poland. So it's not just a regional issue with those actors, it's very much a NATO issue uh, as well. Well, to repeat myself, that's one of the ways in which NATO has absorbed uh, the problems of this region. And it demands, uh, I would hope, extremely careful uh, and cautious thinking at the present moment about what to do if that scenario arises, because it could be very sudden, you know. A health problem for Lukashenko, and suddenly you have uh, a big crisis on your hands. So it's it's one we should be thinking about now.
1: Yeah, my final question is is internal to Russia. You you mentioned the December 2011 protests in Russia and the importance of Boris Nemtsov and Alexei Navalny, as you say, waiting things omens of the Russia that was not Putinist. Both are now dead. Do you think there's any internal hope for change in Russia?
2: Not a great deal. I, I don't know how much appetite there is for. Uh, a very different country. It's a hard point to judge. There's a younger generation. You know, it's a very large country. It's very regionally diverse. um, And Putin has been in power for a long time. So that always creates a kind of appetite for something different, uh, something new. But, uh, you know, you don't see a kind of structured opposition movement in Russia. It would be difficult to function uh, if it were there. But you don't see that. And you would would need that in a way if there were to be big uh, political changes. But the more significant point is that the really powerful institutions in Russia are the Kremlin, they're the security services, they're the military. And I can't imagine it being very easy to sort of get within those institutions. Uh, and whether or not there's a successor to Putin who can be found, and that's a very significant question, because maybe he's the only one who knows how to operate all of this machinery, that's an open question. But the machinery is going to be there. Uh, and the machinery is the machinery that's been created over the last 24 years. It goes back to Soviet times in some respects, and and, and the 1990s uh, as well. Boris Yeltsin concentrated a lot of power in the hands of the Russian president before uh, Putin came on the scene. But that machinery is there, and I suspect, I mean, the guess I would have to make is that the next leader of Russia will be quite similar uh, to Putin, and he will operate within an institutional framework, a kind of power political framework uh, that's similar to the one that we see uh, now. So uh, my assessment, uh, and these things are, very often dramatically wrong these kinds of predictions about the future but my assessment is that what we have now is likely what we're going to have for quite a long time to come to wrap up
1: and uh, because this is a podcast about books i've asked my guests to choose two to recommend one broadly from the same field one one anything actually so uh, michael what have you chosen
2: so i'll take margaret mcmillan's book 1919 uh which is a book about i think it has a different title in the uk i'm not quite sure but it's a title about the end of the first world war Uh, And there are lots of pieces of the puzzle uh, that are kind of haunting at the present moment. First of all, the nature of the conflict uh, and uh, the scale of it and what the diplomacy that came in its wake uh, signified uh, and meant, I think it's a remarkable book, but you also get details in that book that just stand out, such as there being no Ukrainian uh, delegation at Versailles. Uh, There's a very powerful Polish delegation, (laughs) Poland ends up with a nation state after the First World War Ukraine. Uh, does not. And that's, I think, helpful for thinking about where things have trended uh, over the last uh, 100 years. But that book is just a brilliant uh, meditation on diplomacy, war, uh, Europe, uh, the kind of world, uh, the world scene. Uh, and then, you know, I think um, uh, Serhii Plochy's book, The Russo-Ukrainian War, uh, is a really eloquent uh, and richly argued book about uh, the historical context and uh, and background to the war. So, you um, you know, that's one that I would recommend to readers. We're looking a little bit more for, you could say, the local context of the war. Where does the war come from in Russian history? Where does it come from in the history of uh, Ukraine, the history of Central Europe? And uh, and that's a book that's of the essence. So if you read Margaret Macmillan together with Sergei Bloki, you get a 100 years uh, and more uh, of history that uh, really, I think, illuminates uh, the traumatic moment that we're living through.
1: Thank you. I think the Macmillan book is called Paris 1919 in the UK. Yes. I'll, I'll check that, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, today I've been talking to Michael Kimmage about collisions, published today as a Kindle book by Oxford University Press and out as a dead tree on March the 22nd. <laughs> Michael, thanks again for coming on.
2: Thank you so much for taking the time and and, and care to dis- discuss this dead tree that's about to come out.
1: Great. <laughs> right. Okay, we're done. Thank you very much for your time.